Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I just got back from spending a few days down in Cancun, Mexico at Simon Black's Sovereign Man conference that Dr. Mark Faber was down there. Uh, Jim Rickards, a number of people uh, were there. And, you know, I actually recorded a podcast while I was down there, but I had some problems with my equipment. And so it actually didn't record. And so I'm going to have to try to catch up with everybody today on some of the economic news that came out last week, as well as earlier today. You know, the stock market, the S&P and the NASDAQ, made new record highs. In fact, the NASDAQ this morning, as I'm speaking, above 5,100 for the first time ever. The stock market continues to ignore all of the bad news that is raining in on the U.S. economy. You know, the bad news is not being ignored in the foreign exchange markets, although I do believe that the reaction should be bigger and will be bigger as far as the dollar declining as the economic data continues to disappoint. But the stock market is still being benefited by the bad news because it does take away the fear of a rate hike, which I think is more powerful than the reality that the economy is not nearly as strong as people believed because the weaker than expected economy means more cheap money, which means higher stock prices. And that is, in fact, what's going on. Oil prices also benefiting uh, on the week, hitting the highest prices of the year, trading above $58 a barrel. Right now we're back at about 57. But again, I think the trend in oil has changed. Gold didn't do much last week. It was down a bit, but it's up 25 bucks this morning as I'm getting ready to start this particular podcast. I think there's a lot more to go in the gold market. We're now back above the 1200 level, but I think gold is like the uh, proverbial coiled spring getting ready to really break out. But let's go back and look at some of the lowlights when it comes to the economic data that came out last week. Let's start with Thursday's release of the PMI Manufacturing uh, Flash Index. This was an April number. Again, April. Uh, It was supposed to come out at 56, which would have been an improvement from the 55.3 that we got in March. Instead, we got 54.2. That was below even the lowest estimate of 55.5, and of course, well below the highest estimate uh, they they missed expectations. The 54.2 print was the biz, biggest miss against expectations ever since they've been doing the survey. And new orders declined for the first time since November of last year. We also got new home sales that day, and they tumbled, tumbled by 11.1%. Now, that's a March number, so I guess there was still some snow in March, but 11.1% decline. That was the biggest drop since July of 2013, and the miss, 
right? The 481,000, which was the number of new homes sold, based on what the estimates were, this was the biggest miss uh, in a year. So again, we didn't get the optimism. Then last week on Friday, we got March Durable Goods, and it was a slight bump, but that was based on uh, military orders and aircraft. If you strip that out and look at X transportation, the index unexpectedly declined again, uh, 0.2. They were looking for a gain. They got a 0.2% drop. That is the largest year-over-year decline uh, in, since 2012. So about a three-year, uh, you know, how worse this number has been in three years. And if you strip out defense and transportation, orders actually dropped for the seventh consecutive month. This has never happened other than in a recession. Let's take a look now at the numbers we got this morning. Both of the numbers that we got today were April numbers, right? So now we're, we've got out of the, the winter months. We're in springtime. We're in the second quarter. And so let's take a look at some of this economic news that has come out. The first one we got this morning was the um, April service sector PMI. So last week was manufacturing. This is the service sector, which we know is a uh, is a larger part of the, the U.S. economy. And here again, analysts were looking for an increase to fifty nine point five because in in uh, March we got fifty eight point six. And some analysts thought, well, maybe the increase, maybe we'll only have 58. There were the, the high end was 60.4. We actually got 57.8, below the lowest uh, estimate on the street and below the level of March. The 57.8 print was the lowest print since December of last year. But more importantly, it's the biggest miss based on what analysts had been expecting ever. I mean, how many times do I have to report that the miss was the biggest ever? A record miss. And the bad news didn't stop there. We got another report earlier today on the Dallas Fed manufacturing survey. Now, this number came out at a six-year low last month in March of minus 17.4. Now, this time, analysts were a little more cautious. They were looking for another drop, drop rather, in April, uh, 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 minus 12. What did we end up getting? Minus 16. So the drop was significantly larger than the drop that they were expecting. This index is now down six months in a row of negative manufacturing. That has never happened. That is the biggest losing streak ever, right, including 2008 and 2009. And this is the, I think, the, the, the fifth month out of six that the number has missed analyst estimates. But nonetheless, it's a lousy number, and it happened in April. All these numbers are bad numbers happening in April. What's the excuse? There is none. And again, as we get more and more bad economic data coming out in the spring, not only is the market going to have to react to that, But we're going to have to have a delayed reaction to all the bad economic news that happened in the first quarter that was ignored. Because in the first quarter, every time we got bad economic news, the traders chalked it up to the weather. And so we didn't get as bad a reaction as we would have had there not been any excuses.
But if it turns out that the numbers are also bad in the spring, not only does the market have to react to that bad news, but they have to go back and react to the bad news they ignored from January, February, March, because now all of a sudden those are real numbers. It's not the weather that caused the problem. It was the economy that caused the problem. And because it was a real problem, now they've got to go back and react to the numbers that they at one point ignored. You know, I read this article on Zero Hedge where they were uh, looking at what a Boston uh, Fed official said with respect to quantitative easing. And it seemed to me, if you look at what he said, here's a quote, largely missing from these discussions about the Fed's exit strategy is a consideration that perhaps it should retain, not discard the balance sheet tools. The balance sheet tool is quantitative easing. So in other words, maybe we shouldn't have an exit strategy, which is what I've been saying from the beginning, because it's not about not having an exit strategy. It's about exit being impossible. So this is kind of the first time a Fed official has kind of opened the door to QE infinity. He's saying, wait a minute, we're not going to stop this. Uh, It's going to be a permanent part of our, our policy arsenal. And in fact, they're going to have to use it. They can't raise interest rates. Zero percent interest rates are also permanent. I've been making this point ad nauseum, and it still amazes me that so few people have been able to figure it out themselves. You know, once you lower interest rates to zero, and especially you keep them there for six years, the economy becomes addicted to it, just like any drug. You have an economy that needs 0% interest rates. We're all levered up because of 0% interest rates. We have done all sorts of crazy things that we never would have done but for 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. You can't take that stuff away. Now, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, we're not going to raise interest rates back up to, you know, 4 or 5%. I mean, we're not going to go back up to normal levels, but, you know, we're going to go back up to 2%. And number one, A, that should be problematic because keep 2% is still a problem. I mean, why can't we go back to normal, right? What, you know, to, to acknowledge the fact that we can never go back to a normal rate environment acknowledges a really serious problem. But let's think about this for a second. Why would raising rates to 2% not be problematic for an economy that is already used to and addicted to zero? See, it's just like any other drug. If you're taking a certain amount of heroin and you go to your pusher and he decides to cut back your supply by 50 percent, you're not going to be okay with that. I mean, if you're getting half the drugs that your body needs, you're going to have a violent reaction. You just can't take a smaller dosage and expect, you know, no problem. So if the market needs zero percent and they're only going to get two percent, that's not enough stimulus. The market that was built for zero can't handle two. It certainly can't handle three percent. And the the other part of it is, it's not only that the market can't handle a reduction in the dosage, it needs an increase in the dosage. Because again, like drugs, the more you take it, the more you need. Your body starts to build up a tolerance. So pretty soon, 0% isn't enough. So you need the negative rate of interest, or you need quantitative easing. You know, they took away the quantitative easing, so we're not getting all of the drugs we used to get. We have the 0% interest rates, but we don't have the quantitative easing, and we have to get quantitative easing back in order for the economy to continue uh, to experience the, the, the euphoria that it did in the past. 
Of course, the end result of all of this quantitative easing and 0% interest rates is going to be big increases in consumer prices. And again, the central banks are already trying to set the stage for us to embrace the inflation that they're creating. I just read this article last week about Switzerland. Listen to this title. It's a Bloomberg article. Swiss left helpless in currency wars as Frank keeps surging. They're helpless. They're helpless because of the falling franc. And if you read through the article, it the article mentions how consumer prices are are declining in in Switzerland and how and how this is a problem. Here's what the article uh, writes or the, the it states. Any turnaround in the franc is unlikely to come soon enough to cure Switzerland's falling prices. Cure as if lower consumer prices are a disease that needs a cure. And they're they're upset because the the citizens are not going to get relief from this disease. Here, the article reads, the Swiss National Bank expects consumer prices to drop 1.1% this year and only start rising again in 2017. So in other words, the poor Swiss citizens are going to have to suffer until 2017 because between now and then, prices are going to get a little cheaper and they're going to have to wait until 2017 to get the relief that they're praying for. You know, they can't wait for prices to start going up, right? They're looking forward to 2017. They'll finally get relief. I mean, right now they must be in agony, right? When they go to the store and they want to buy something and they find that the price is slightly less than it was the last time they bought it. I mean, they must be in agony. I mean, I don't know how they survive. Uh, you know, they, 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 they're just dying. They're waiting for this cure. They're just, God, can't, we need a cure for this. What can we do? I need prices to go up. I got to make sure that if I buy something, it costs me more. I mean, this is the nonsense. I mean, is it possible that anybody actually believes this? You know, the article was written in response to the, to the Swiss deciding to expose more of their accounts to negative interest rates. And the idea is to try to create more inflation. Meanwhile, I already talked about how inflation is now picking up substantially in countries like Canada and Australia. And by the way, those currencies have turned around now because I think people realize that Rate cuts are off the table now. The only question is, when are those central banks going to have to start raising interest rates? Because they're going to have too much of a good thing. But the idea that falling consumer prices are a problem that needs a government cure. Everybody knows that when prices go down, you buy more. People don't have an unlimited amount of money. Uh, They have to work uh, within you know their means, they have a paycheck, they have a certain amount of savings, and as prices go up, they they can buy less. Right? If prices go down, they can buy more. So you've got these articles again that keep coming out where they warn about how dangerous it is if the cost of living goes down, how terrible it is for an economy if the people that live there uh, can buy the things that they need for less money. But Anybody can tell you, any consumer, anybody who has any basic knowledge of supply and demand, that's the problem, too. When you've got all these economists who are saying this nonsense, when the most important law of economics is the law of supply and demand. And the demand curve is downward sloping because, according to the demand curve, the higher the price, the lower the demand. And the lower the price, the higher the demand. So if consumer prices go up, people will buy less. If prices go down, people will buy more. Yet they're saying that 
lower prices are a problem because it's going to cause consumers not to spend when it's the exact opposite. Lower prices will cause consumers to spend more. When prices go down, demand goes up, and so people will buy more stuff because they can afford to buy more stuff. When you increase prices, people can afford to buy less stuff. I mean, it's so simple that only an economist uh, wouldn't be able to understand it. You know, also, based on the increase in crude oil prices last week, the price of a gallon of gas was up by 17 cents uh, a barrel. I mean, not 17 cents a barrel, 70 cents a gallon, which should be theoretically, I mean, the way these Keynesians talk about it, it should be good news, right? Because gas prices are rising. Yet when gas prices were falling, they told us that was good news. So again, it shows you how disingenuous they are because they're always going to talk about uh things being good, whether it's prices going up or prices going down, no matter what it is, they're going to spin it in a positive way. And they don't even care if they look hypocritical because nobody even calls them out about it. You know, speaking about hypocrisy today, Fitch came out and downgraded uh, Japanese government debt. They went from what a to a minus. And the reason is the deteriorating fiscal condition of Japan. Well, if they're going to downgrade Japan based on its deteriorating fiscal condition, why is the U.S. still AAA? I mean, clearly we have a deteriorating fiscal condition. In fact, I think it's deteriorating even more because I think if you look at all of our liabilities, not just the the bonded, the funded, but all the unfunded and contingent liabilities that the U.S. government has, I think we're more screwed up. I think we're more heavily indebted than is Japan and we're actually less able to pay. So if Japan is going to get downgraded based on uh, their deteriorating fiscal position, what about the United States? I mean, you got to be a hypocrite to downgrade Japan and to leave the U.S. at AAA. I mean, the, the Japan can print all the yen they want. Japan borrows in their own currency. So if you're going to say, well, it's okay for the U.S. government to have a lot of debt because it's in dollars— well, all the Japanese debt is in yen. They can print yen, too, just like we can print dollars. Of course, the reason is people are afraid to downgrade Japan. I mean, Fitch is not going to have to worry about the Japanese government fining them for the downgrade. But they know, based on what the U.S. government already did to S&P, there isn't a rating agency in the world that's got the balls to downgrade the U.S. government because they know how the U.S. government handles agencies that downgrade them. Right. It's like somebody, uh, you know, not wanting to say something bad about about a mob boss. You know, who's going to want to do that? You know, because you know what's going to happen to you if you criticize, uh, you know, uh, the mob boss. Well, that's how the U.S. government acts with respect to uh, these credit agencies. And no one's going to say anything. They're just going to they're just going to keep quiet. But people have to make these discoveries for themselves. And again, the real problem for people who hold U.S. treasuries is not that the U.S. government is going to default in any honest way. I mean, they don't have enough integrity to do that. The real problem is going to be the collapse of the dollar, which means you're going to get your dollars back, but you're not going to get your purchasing power back. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. 
Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.